let's dive in today and look at how geneticists use genetics. I've told you up to now about some of the history of genetics and how it gave rise to our understandings about uh, genetic transmission of traits, about genetic mapping, linkage analysis, how all this helped confirm the chromosome theory. And we wove in a number of concepts about how scientific theories are developed, data is interpreted and in intuitions are made, and then how they're actually proven, what sort of evidence it takes to actually achieve uh, consensus around theories. And that often takes sometimes years, many times decades before full consensus is achieved around things. Today I want to turn a little bit to the experimental uses of genetics more in a more day-to-day -day fashion. And you'll recall this coat of arms that I put up here, function, gene, protein, genetic, uh, biochemistry, genetics. And I told you about how these were two different ways to study biological function. Today I want to talk a little bit about how we use genetics to study biological function. And in particular, I'm going to pick some examples of how we use genetics to study biological function that have to do with the biological functions of biochemistry. So already, we're beginning to look ahead to this connection between gene and protein, which molecular biology will establish for us. Um, so uh, suppose you want to do genetics. You've got to study some organism. We talked already about Mendel's choice of organism, the P. We talked about some of its advantages and disadvantages. Um, advantages, you could get pure breeding strains in the market. Uh, you could, when you're done with the experiments, feed it to the other monks. There were a lot of things like that that were advantageous about the P. Uh, but it had problems of generation time. Uh, you'd only get, you know, certainly in Europe, a generation or so a year um, in, in Northern Europe. Maybe you could squeeze the second generation and not so good. Fruit flies, very attractive system in many respects because there were, you could grow many much larger numbers. The generation time is on the order of two weeks or so to go from a, a fertilized fly embryo, a fly egg, a, uh, developing into a fly, developing into a mature adult, able itself to have offspring. So very attractive. There are other systems that people study. And of course, one of the reasons they study the system is because it's interesting. Uh, sorry, because it's, it's tractable. And the other reason is because it's interesting. So tractability is very important to a geneticist, right? The number of whale geneticists is few for the most part. Um, but uh, we also want to choose our system because of what it will tell us about the system we want to study. Like, if you want to study distinctive things about the immune system, you might want to study them in mice or if you could even study them in people, although you can't set up crosses in people, and we'll come to that on Monday. Um, you, if you wanted to study things about basic aspects of development, you might study them in fruit flies. And if you wanted to study basic biochemistry, the place to study basic biochemistry might best be done in single-celled organisms, which also have to carry out biochemical pathways like glycolysis and synthesis of amino acids and things like that, um, they're going to be the, by far the most tractable systems. And so people are particularly fond for doing things like studying basic biochemistry and many other aspects of basic molecular biology to studying the organism yeast. 
Yeast is a friend of human beings. Uh, uh, certainly, yeast has been uh, an intensively studied organism because of its practical benefit uh, in the making of bread and the making of beer. Uh, so fermentation processes, uh, the rising and all that. Uh, but yeast also is a tremendously important organism for the geneticist. It is an extremely elegant experimental system. Yeast is a fungus. It is a single-celled eukaryote. That is true nucleus. It's got chromosomes that pair up. Its cells, to a first-order approximation, are an awful lot like your cells in, turn, in terms of having all of the basic important eukaryotic organelles in the nucleus, mitochondria, other things like that. So yeast is a great model for many purposes. And uh, we're not going to talk much about the cell biology of yeast, but I do want to talk about the husbandry of yeast, how it is that you grow yeast. So the way a geneticist grows yeast is it takes growth medium that has lots of rich nutrients. You could take a broth of, uh, with lots of amino acids and all sorts of stuff and, you know, some little bit of salt, lots of water, of course. And if you take a single yeast cell and it's got lots and lots of rich nutrients in this broth here, you put your yeast cell into the broth. So we'll do that. Here's my flask. Here's my little rod, which has a yeast cell or a couple of yeast cells on the end of it. I put it in there, and I grow it at an appropriate temperature. Let's say 30 degrees, for example, would be a nice temperature. Uh, I could do that if I wanted to. Um, then a C, obviously. I grow it up, and I get a culture of yeast in there. And I can tell because this nice clear broth is now all cloudy with yeast that's grown up in it. Now, I want to study these guys. So what I do is I pour them out onto a Petri plate. The Petri plate has on it a medium, a solid medium, an agar medium, that again has nutrients. And if I pour this out, and I pour out a lot of it, what will happen? Well, there'll be yeast all over the place, and it'll be very schmutzy. There'll be like yeast cells everywhere, and you know it's not very organized. So what I want to do is I want to take that, and I want to dilute it. I want to take only a little bit of the broth and put a little bit of the broth on my plate. Maybe I've diluted it first. And then I want to spread it around with a little spreader. Here's a little glass spreader, maybe, or something. And you know, push it back and forth so that really there are just individual single cells scattered randomly, scattered around. And so then this cell begins to grow and divide and divide and divide. And I get a colony, a little hill of cells, all of which descend from a single cell that was put into that position. And the reason I know that they all descend from a single cell is because most of this plate does not have cells on it. Most of the plate is sparse. I've just got cells, 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 cells scattered about. And because of that, I know that these, these had to have been individual events. These things are called colonies, of course. Now, 
When yeast grows and divides like that, let's take a moment and talk about its life cycle. We'll introduce its life cycle here. Yeast proper eukaryote, so it has a diploid stage. It grows as a diploid. And it can undergo mitosis, in which all of the chromosomes line up, as we talked about. They've already pre-replicated so that they'll be ready to divide up and give one to each daughter's cell. And there you go. N for yeast is 16. Yeast happens to have 16 pairs of chromosomes. Peas had seven. Humans have 23 pairs. Every organism has its own. Yeast is 16. Now, what we do is we undergo meiosis to make haploid cells, sperm or eggs in the human population. Yeast also undergoes meiosis to make spores. It sporulates, and it produces spores. And it turns out these spores, of course, as you would expect, have N chromosomes. They undergo meiosis, just as we draw it, drew it on the board. And, this, and these uh, can come in two flavors. They happen to come not in male and females, but A and alpha. There you go. A and alpha cells can mate together to produce, again, a diploid. They fertilize and can produce a diploid. Fuse to do that, and you now get back to a diploid from your haploid. So this looks just identical to the human genetic cycle here, but there is one difference. What's the difference? Sorry, time? Yes, it's true. Yeast can divide much more rapidly. Yeast can have offspring extremely rapidly um, over the course of a day or so, and humans take somewhat longer than that. They, for example, have to wait till they get out of college. Um, to, to be able to reproduce mostly. Um, what else? There's one other important thing. It turns out that yeast can also undergo mitosis as a haploid. In other words, the haploid cells of yeast, when it, when it under when it uh, makes individual haploids, they can continue to grow indefinitely. By contrast, your gametes cannot. You do not have an independent human stage in which you are haploid or your, you know, your gametes are haploid, whereas yeast can hang out as a haploid for a very long time until it decides it wants to mate. This is very convenient for geneticists. Geneticists like this because it means we can grow the thing as a diploid, we can grow the thing as a haploid. When we want to mate them, we can mate them together, but we could also study them alone. And you could imagine this is going to be really good for studying recessive traits, right? So that's one of the reasons geneticists are fond of yeast. There are many reasons geneticists are fond of yeast. Just growing yeast, it smells very nice in the lab, for example. Try growing, try growing E. coli by comparison. Um, so uh, now, it turns out that yeast is very happy if you grow it on a rich medium. But yeast can grow on minimal media. With very few macromolecules, 
It needs a carbon source. which is some sugar that it can ferment. It needs a nitrogen, it needs some simple source of nitrogen. It needs a source of phosphorus. And it needs some other trace salts and things like that, and obviously it needs some water. That's it. Now you think about what's in a yeast cell. Like it's got phospholipid bilayers. But you're not giving it any phospholipids. Why, why is it able to grow? It makes them. What about proteins? They're made up of 20 amino acids. You're not giving it any amino acids. Why? It makes them. Yeast is extraordinarily self-reliant. You, by contrast, are not as self-reliant. There are a number of amino acids which if I don't give you, you can't live because you don't actually have the ability to make those amino acids. But yeast is able to make the vast majority of things. Basically, you, you almost just need it to, to give it the elements. As, as for carbon sources and things like that, it's, it's very happy with a wide variety of fermentable sugars. You can give it glucose. You can give it uh, sucrose. You can give it galactose. You can give it fructose, and it'll deal. So yeast is very well set up metabolically. So it's got all of these pathways of the sort Bob has talked about for being able to break down the things you give it and being able to synthesize up the things it needs. Now, yeast, of course, is not stupid because if you give it amino acids, it'll use it. If you give it all sorts of other things, it'll use it. So yeast is able to use... rich media that have lots of complex nutrients and macromolecules. So it has an ability. It has everything it needs to make these things, but it has an ability to regulate that. So the processes, the enzymatic pathways that produce complex macromolecules, amino acids, phospholipids, et cetera, will be down-regulated, shut off, or at least decreased if you provide it with these macromolecules. That's an interesting question of how it manages to regulate its biochemistry. Why, why does it care? Why doesn't it, why, why not just have those pathways be on all the time? Yep. Sorry? Waste of energy needs ATP, costs money. So at the beginning, probably, they were on all the time but some yeast evolves or some precursor yeast evolves that's able to regulate it. That one is able to be more frugal with its energy. It outgrows its other ones, then another. Da, 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 da. Any place you can make a few ATPs here or there, you know, eventually the organism that does it will outcompete the organism that doesn't. And so rather find control of this, which is a topic we'll come to in a couple of days, gene regulation and other kinds of pathway regulation is very important. Okay, so we want to know how does it do it? What are the enzymes? What are the pathways? How does it actually make, oh, I don't know, um, arginine? How does it make arginine, an amino acid? How would you find out how yeast makes arginine? Synthes how can yeast synthesize arginine? So you remember our picture that 
the biochemist wants to study a problem by grinding up the cell and purifying a component to able to do something. So a biochemist might want to grind up the cell and purify an enzyme that can make arginine. Uh, from what, of course, is an interesting question. And then the thing that made the thing that was used, the substrate, et cetera, et cetera. What would a geneticist do? How does a geneticist approach the problem of how does, how does yeast make arginine? Find a yeast that can't make it. That's what we do. That is, so what we need is a mutant. A geneticist wants a yeast that can't make it. A geneticist wants mutants. How do you find a mutant? You find a mutant by going on a mutant hunt. That is what geneticists refer to it as, and it's a very exciting thing. You go off, load up the guns, and go off into the bush on a mutant hunt. And so I want to talk about the, the strategy for a mutant hunt. How do we look for a yeast that can't make arginine? Sorry? I cannot. I've got a yeast that can make arginine because normal wild-type yeast can grow on minimal media without arginine supplied. And when I examine it, it's got arginine in it. Yes? So find, to find who should I find? Proteins that, that contain arginine. And then that doesn't have the proteins that have arginine. Interesting. Now, the problem is almost all proteins will have an arginine, or the vast majority of them. And a yeast that lacked all those proteins that didn't have arginine would not be much of a yeast. I think it would be pretty dead. So it, it's a good thought if it was a more dispensable function, but that's going to be tough. Or maybe I can use the fact that it's dead. Since you know, in a sense, can I find the yeast? Hmm, yes, you had a thought on this. Yes? Kill all the yeast that makes arginine. Kill all yeast that make arginine. Excellent. So if I had a chemical agent that could kill yeasts that can make arginine, I could only get the yeast that make arginine. How would I do that? Um, the yeast that makes arginine has to use something to make the arginine. So focus on that and kill all the ones that It's a very interesting idea. I could actually, I mean, you're right. You could construct a chemical molecule in the arginine pathway, which when it was broken down enzymatically, made some toxic product, and only those yeasts that couldn't break it down would be able to grow, et cetera, et cetera, and I could select. It's a very clever idea. But I'd also have to know an awful lot about the pathway in advance. So suppose I didn't know the pathway. Suppose I know nothing about how arginine gets made. Yes? Grow a bunch of yeast in solution with arginine, and then take the offspring and then a solution without arginine, and then the one part of it, and then find the ones that die, and those are the ones Excellent. So I take. So this is, this is, I mean, geneticists are simple-minded folk, and, and they like simple solutions. Take medium in which you've given the yeast arginine, grow it up, and then pour it out on a plate that doesn't have arginine. So let's, everybody got this idea? So we're going to take yeast, we're going to grow it up in medium which contains ar arginine, with arginine, so now yeasts, those mutants that arose by chance that are unable to, to make their own arginine are still able to grow here. And then we dump it out onto a plate that has minimal media without arginine, no arginine. And those ones that can grow up are the ones that we're not interested in. And the ones that don't appear are the ones we're interested in. 
But wait a second, that's the problem, isn't it? Because they're not there. How do we study them? They didn't, they're not there. What can we do about that? It's good up to, yes, you want to see if you can help us? Remove the ones that grow up. So get in there, scrape them off. Now put some, some arginine on. We're getting to the idea, maybe we can set this up more elegantly, though. Thoughts? How can we, how can we, yes? Make a bet? Make a guess. I can make that guess, but how, does it, how do I find them? Here's a simple, simple, simple idea. Let me try a simple idea. How about I grow up these yeast, and instead of plating them on minimal medium, let's be good to them. Let's plate them on minimal medium. That me? Let's plate them on minimal medium plus arginine. Or actually, if we wanted to, we could even plate them on rich medium. We'll be really good to them, either way. So now, let's let each one grow up. And here will be the, arg the ones that can grow and the ones that can't grow with arginine. Now, let me take a plate that is minimal medium. And now, let me take a toothpick. Put a little toothpick there and carry over this colony to there. Let me take a toothpick and carry this guy over to here, and a toothpick and carry this guy to here, and a toothpick, and a toothpick, and a toothpick. And all I have to do is keep transferring one at a time these colonies. And now I can see that somewhere there was a colony that grew fine when I gave it, say, rich medium, or minimal plus arginine, and a colony that didn't grow when I put it on minimal medium. That would at least show. So of course, the issue is I first have to find them by growing them on something where I've given them the arginine, and then I can see that they can't grow. All right. This is what geneticists basically do. What happens if I grew them on rich medium, and I transferred them to minimal medium? Why might something not grow? Might be missing the ability to make tryptophan. Might be missing the ability to make you know, proline. Might be missing the ability to make something else. So what I can do is, if I wanted to make a very broad mutant hunt, I could just first grow on rich medium, and then plate on minimal medium. And any yeast that has lost the ability to make some essential nutrient will be evident by its absence on the minimal medium plate. So we have a name for yeasts. Yeasts that are able to grow on minimal media are called prototrophs. They, can, they, they are the wild type. They can grow on minimal media. They can make everything themselves. Yeasts that need help, that cannot grow by themselves that need help, that need a supplement, are called oxotrophs. Oxo obviously meaning help. So it's a mutant that has lost the ability 
to grow on minimal medium and that it needs a supplement of some kind. So if I wanted to, I could just first collect lots and lots and lots of oxytrophs and then figure out what they need. So I might collect a large collection of oxytrophs and then test to see if supplying arginine rescues them. I could also test tryptophan. I could also, so if I only, only, only cared about finding arginine oxytrophs, I could just grow them on minimal plus arginine and put them on, and then test them on minimal. And then I would know in advance these guys all grew with arginine on minimal and didn't grow without arginine, and I'd know it was arginine. Or if I was in an expansive mood, I could test them on rich medium, collect everybody who's unable to grow on minimal, and then work out what the reason is. Is it arginine? Is it proline? Is it whatever? And it depends how much work you're interested in doing and how complete the study is you want to do. Uh, either way, we could end up with a collection of arginine oxytrophs. Organisms that are mutant for the ability to make their own arginine and require it to be supplied to them in the medium. All right. I might get, depending on how much work I'm going to do, dozens of independent colonies unable to grow without arginine. I might get hundreds if I'm willing to do enough work. I get as many as I want. We got to Our goal now is to study them and find out why they're unable to do that. I have a quick question. Those yeast cells we plated, were they haploid or diploid? I don't know if we said, we didn't say, did we? So should they be haploid or diploid? How many vote diploid? How many vote haploid? A lot of people vote haploid, but uh, aren't willing to express a reason why. Why haploid? Yeah. Ah, right. Excellent, excellent. Although genes are not recessive, but okay. Um, little detail. Phenotypes are recessive. Tell me a little more about what you're thinking about. We'll have it out later on this point, yes. <laughs> yeah. So suppose we were looking in a haploid. I take your point, even if on nomenclature I want to uh, push back a bit there. So suppose it's a diploid, and suppose we have now two copies of this chromosome here in the diploid, and suppose there's a gene over here that is, encodes an enzyme that we know is necessary to make arginine, or that somebody knows is necessary to make arginine. Let's imagine that that's the case. In order to get a, yeast, a haploid yeast that is unable to make arginine due to a mutation in this gene, you need to have some kind of a mutation in this copy. What about in the diploid yeast? In order to make this yeast unable to grow without arginine, do we need a mutation in both copies? Well. The answer is probably. 
The truth is actually a bit more complicated, but let's suppose it was the case that even one copy of the functional gene was sufficient to carry out the enzymatic step, then the answer would be, yeah, we'd need a mutation in both copies. What's the chance of finding a yeast that has a mutation in both copies? It's obviously much less than the chance of finding a yeast that has a mutation in one copy. So we're much better to go searching in the haploid where the phenotype will be revealed much more easily by virtue of just a single mutation rather than having to, by chance, encounter one that had mutations in both copies. Now, the reason I'm a little bit cautious here is because notwithstanding the textbooks, it's not always the case that everything like this is, is a recessive trait. It's possible that oxytrophy for arginine could be a dominant trait. So without, uh, so, so how could that be? Well, oxytrophy could be a recessive trait. Suppose there's some enzymatic pathway. A goes to B goes to C goes to D, and this encodes an enzyme that carries out a particular biochemical step. Well, if the gene is broken, if the gene is missing, if the gene doesn't make the proteins, you guys all know that that's what happens, um, then you don't have the enzyme, you can't do the pathway. And it is usually the case that having just one copy is sufficient because having a little bit of enzyme, the pathway may, may work slower, but it'll still work just fine. You'll eventually get arginine made. But it's occasionally possible, I note, since, since you, know, you guys are sophisticated, that sometimes a gene can encode a protein which not only doesn't work, but screws up the other copies of the pro working copies of the protein. Suppose the enzyme that did this were a tetramer. It had, lot, it had several subunits that had come together. A mutant copy of an enzyme, when it forms into a tetramer, might somehow disrupt all the other good copies that are around. And that does happen sometimes. It can happen that you can have an, a, an inability to, use, to, to make your own arginine um, be a dominantly inherited trait. So you actually have to test whether it's recessive or dominant. Often it will be recessive. So usually most of these simple oxytrophies are recessive traits. Traits. Occasionally some are dominant. So now, suppose we get a whole collection of arch oxytrophs, and we'll just give them a name. I don't know. Here's my collection. We'll call the first one, um, for lack of anything terribly creative, arch one, arch two, arch three, etc. Each being an individual strain from grown up originally from a single colony that is unable to produce its own arginine. We now want to take this collection and characterize it. How many distinct genes? Does this affect? Are these mutants perhaps all in the same gene? Are they in a hundred different genes? How could we tell? Now, of course, if you're a biochemist and you already know the protein, you can see, and da, 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 but if you know the answer, well, why are we asking already, right? A geneticist goes out to ask this question because he or she wants to know all the possible ways you can disrupt a cell so it can't make arginine. And we don't know in advance what those ways are. So how are we going to be able to tell whether or not different mutations affect the same gene, the same function in yeast? It's an interesting question. Geneticists do a variety of tests. The first test 
that a geneticist does to characterize a mutant by tests of recessivity or dominance, whichever way you want to put it. We want to take each mutant and test whether it is recessive or dominant as a phenotype, whether the phenotype, the oxytrophy for arginine, is recessive or dominant. So here's mutant number one, the mutant cell carrying this mutation here. Conceptually, it affects some gene. I'm going to label it ARG1. We don't know where it is in the genome. There are other chromosomes here as well. Here's my mutant cell. How am I going to find out whether or not the oxytrophy for arginine is recessive or dominant? With, with what? Cross it with a haploid, haploid that is a prototroph, or I could just say cross it with wild type, right? Perfect. So make a cross here, very good, with wild type plus there. How do I know it's plus there? Because it's wild type. Wild type is defined as the normal form, and so because I said this is what we're using as wild type, it's necessarily plus because we're measuring mutations relative to wild type. So what happens when we get here? We now, when we cross it, we get a diploid. And ARG1 plus. Now, how do we know whether or not that phenotype was recessive or dominant? Sorry? What shows up when we, shows up when we, when we try to grow it? So, so when we cross it, what kind of a plate should we, should we grow it on first? Should we grow it on minimal or rich? We better grow it on rich, because just in case it doesn't, it can't make its own arginine, we better first let it grow and then test it. So let's grow it on rich medium. We'll cross these together. Grow it on rich medium. So grow on rich. Test on minimal. Or, okay? And we'll be able to check out the phenotype as to whether or not the phenotype is wild type or mutant. All right, so we could do that, and uh, we'll test the first one, and the second one, and the third one, and the fourth one. And uh, for each of these, we'll write down whether it's recessive or a dominant oxytrophy. Now, let me assume that all the ones we're talking about are recessive phenotypes, because everything I'm about to say is very much harder if it turned out any of them were dominant. So we're going to assume, let's assume now, but it's not always the case. We'll assume that uh, the collection, maybe ARG100, are all recessive oxytrophies. The phenotype is recessive. Now, how do I tell if they're in the same gene or not? So now I want to characterize my mutant by some other test that will tell me whether or not ARG1 and ARG2 are in the same gene. Suppose ARG1 and ARG2 are in different genes. 
cross them, what will happen? Right, so, so to repeat that, if I cross together the two mutants and they're in different genes, each will have at least, each will be contributing a good copy, a functional copy, a wild type copy of one of the genes. So let's walk this through. Interesting, interesting. So suppose I take a situation where I've got ARG1, a mutation in a gene over here on this chromosome, and on the other chromosome, I've got a wild-type copy. My ARG1 mutant is mutated in a gene here. I've got this other gene here, which is normal, and I'm going to cross that now by the strain that has a wild-type copy here for this first gene, but it has a mutation in the second gene. When I cross them together, I now get me a diploid cell here, which is ARG1, a mutation there, plus there, plus copy here, and ARG2. Will having one copy, one working copy of this gene be enough to make the enzyme? No? In other words, is the wild-type phenotype dominant to this oxytrophy? Or is the oxytrophy attributable to this gene recessive? Yes. Why? Because we assumed it. Why did we assume it? So I would be able to say this, right? Okay. If it wasn't, we would be in trouble here. But by assuming that we're working with a recessive phenotype, then we know that this will be enough to save the yeast. What about here? Enough to save the yeast. So it will grow without arginine. By contrast, suppose it was the case that this cell here, arg1, and suppose our other mutant that we had isolated in our mutant hunt was a mutation ARG2 in the same gene. Suppose these were the same gene. When I cross them together, I now have a cell that is ARG1, ARG2. In other words, its genotype is ARG1 over ARG2. Two name of mutation, and can it grow? No growth without arginine. By contrast, the genotype here is arg1 over plus, plus over arg2. I could equally write arg2 over plus, but I just did that to indicate the chromosomes that they came from. All right. This is called a test of complementation because these two genes are able to complement each other's defect. If two mutations complement each other's defect, 
then they are in different genes. Okay? So, uh, oh, that's a noisy one. So we're able to make a complementation table. Suppose I take a bunch of yeasts, wild type, WT, mutant number one, mutant number two, mutant number three, mutant number four, and suppose I cross them with each other in all pairwise combinations. I've assumed that all of these arginine oxytrophs have a recessive phenotype here. These are all my arg mutants. And I'm assuming that this is recessive. What happens when I cross them and I test to see whether they can grow without arginine? If I cross wild type by wild type, can it grow without arginine? Yeah, normal phenotype. So plus is going to mean prototrophic. Minus will mean oxytrophic for arginine. What happens when I cross wild type with, with mutant number one? Grows. Why? By assumption, these were all recessive. I'm only testing recessive ones. Two, three, four. When I cross in this direction, wild type by these guys, this is going to be a symmetric matrix, of course, right? OK. Now, what happens when I cross mutant one by mutant one? I now have a diploid. Will it be able to grow without arginine? No, why not? Has no working copies of that gene. So I'm going to put a minus there. What about mutant 2 with mutant 2? Minus. What about mutant 3 with mutant 3? Minus. What about mutant 4 with mutant 4? Minus. Now, what happens when I cross mutant 1 by mutant 2? It depends. Might be plus or it might be minus. If they're in the same gene, minus. Different genes? Could be plus. So here's, some, here's data. So all this is compelled, but the kind of data, ooh, I'll use a color. Isn't that fun? OK. Um, they want me to use colors over there. Uh, here we go. Suppose the data were minus, minus, plus, 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 minus, minus, plus, 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 what would it be? What conclusion could we draw? Is mutant 1 and mutant 3 in the same gene? They complement each other. No. But is 1 in the same gene as 2? Yes. In fact, this box and this box here define the genes beautifully. The groups that fail to complement define mutations in the same gene. These are called complementation groups because they don't complement. Okay, it's a little complicated, but that's all right. These are called complementation groups because all the members of the complementation group namely ARG1 and ARG2, fail to complement each other. They could be called failure to complement groups, but it would be too long. Okay? So there you go. You can take hundreds of mutants and organize them into complementation groups and thereby know 
which ones go to the same gene. And now if I want to study the genes, I only have to study the distinct complementation groups. Last thing, which we'll just have time to do, are what's called tests of epistasis. We'll probably run just a moment or two over on this. Suppose a biochemist were collaborating with a geneticist and had studied what he or she thought was the pathway for making arginine. Some precursor alpha goes to precursor beta, goes to precursor gamma, goes to arginine. And suppose specific genes were needed to encode specific proteins. I'll call them ARGA, ARGB, ARGC, to catalyze each step of this biochemical reaction. The geneticist and the biochemist could collaborate with each other to study whether these mutants, these, these particular genes now that have been identified, affected each step of the pathway. And here's how they might do it. They might take wild-type yeast, mutants that, now they wouldn't know in advance whether or not it was missing the ability to grow on each of, uh, to, whether it was missing each of these enzymes. But let's think conceptually. Suppose we had a mutant that was uh, a strain that was wild-type RJ minus, RGB minus, RGC minus, unable to make this enzyme, this enzyme, this enzyme. And suppose we helped it along. Suppose we gave the mutant Oops, arginine. Suppose we supplement and grow it on media with arginine. Which ones will be able to grow with arginine? Can wild type grow if it's given arginine? What about RJ minus? B minus? C minus? What if instead we offer it precursor gamma? Will wild type be able to grow if it's given precursor gamma? Sure. What about RJ minus? No, because it still is stuck at this step. It can't. What about RGB minus? What about RGC minus? Really? It hasn't got this enzyme. What's it going to do with gamma? Ain't got anything to do with gamma. No enzyme. Suppose I gave it beta. Wild type, can it grow? What about uh, RJ minus? No, because it can go from alpha to beta, but it can't go to gamma. Can't grow. What about RGB minus? I've given it beta, but it can't do anything with beta because it hasn't got this gene. What about RGC minus? Wait a second. What did I just do? We're just backwards. Sorry. If we gave it gamma, I just got lost here. If we gave it gamma, it was able to grow. Well, we are completely wrong, guys. It's able to grow here. Thank you. Let's go back on that. You should have caught me before. My mistake. If we gave it gamma, it's able to, if it's a mutant here, it can grow because it bypasses this problem. And having gamma is enough. If I gave it beta, sorry, if I gave it gamma and its mutation was here, it can grow. Sorry. Now, if I gave it here beta and its mutation was here, it can still grow, right? But if its mutation is here, it can't. 
And if its mutation is here, it can't. Whew, that's better. I was getting worried there for a while myself. Suppose I gave it alpha. Wild type can grow. If I give this guy alpha, will that help if he's mutant in A? No. Can it help if he's mutant in B? No. Can it help if he's mutant in C? No. Sorry, there we go. I usually start at the other end of this picture. Um, so what you can see is these mutants have different phenotypes with respect to being able to supplement them with different chemicals. Now let me ask, in our last two minutes, I'll run two minutes over here. Suppose I gave you a mutant that was a double homozygote. Suppose it was ARG B minus, ARG B minus, sorry, ARG B minus and ARG C minus. Suppose it was a double mutant. It lacked both this and this. Which line of my table would it resemble? Would it look like the first line, the second line, or the third line of my table? Second line, why is that? If I'm lacking B, I'm already in trouble here. And also, lacking C doesn't matter. So I will look just like a mutant that lacks B. So in other words, I'm able, if I know something about the biochemistry of a pathway, and I can break my arginine mutants up into different kinds of phenotypes here by their response to different steps in a pathway, I can then look at combinations of mutants. And I can say, if I have a double mutant missing both B and C, does it look like B or does it look like C when I put them together? And it turns out that if it looks like B, then B was further upstream in the pathway. So it turns out that geneticists and biochemists can collaborate based on the phenotype of the organism sometimes to infer aspects of the biochemical pathway. These are the kinds of things a geneticist does to be able to characterize mutants on a mutant hunt. Next time, what I want to do is talk about characterizing mutants in a very different kind of organism, namely the human being.